you, Eric? You may all be seated. (laughs) Please take your scriptures and turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. We're going to continue to look at this wonderful chapter and what it tells us about our Great Commission. At the end of Matthew, we are, of course, know that that is where we kind of turn to, Matthew 28, for the uh, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And here he is, he is previewing that by sending out the 12. And we've been looking at this chapter and, and what we can glean from that. When the Spanish conquistador Francisco Pizarro turned south from Panama to explore what we now know as South America, he offered his little band of followers a tremendous choice, the choice between the known safety of Panama and the yet unknown splendor of Peru. As legend has it, he took his sword on that day and traced a line in the sand from east to west. And then he said, friends, on that side of the line are toil and hunger, nakedness, drenching storms, desertion and death. On this side, ease and pleasure. There lies Peru with his riches. Here, Panama with its poverty. Choose each man what is best becomes a brave Spaniard. For my part, I go south. And with that, he stepped across the line. That day, 13 others stepped across with him, and their names are immortal. Here we have 12 men around Jesus. He has called them, and he sends them into Israel. And Jesus tells them in the same way as Pizarro that they're going to face all types of opposition. Opposition from without, opposition from within. And all 12 of them stepped across the line into immortality. Let's read about what Jesus tells them. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 10. God's word says, and he called him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of, of the Samaritans, but go rather first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of God is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. 
Acquire no gold or silver or copper on your belt, no bag on your journey, or two tunics or sandals or staff, for the laborer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents, yet innocent as doves. Beware of men. For they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated for all of my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are more valuable than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those in his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. 
And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Last week we began looking at this, actually two weeks ago we began looking at this as he commissioned his 12 disciples. And we discussed then how it is the, the calling and the sending is both similar and dissimilar, right, to how we are called. And we looked at some of those. But he sends them out with the same message, the same message. Good news that the Messiah is come. Heaven is at near, is at hand. But he also wants to forewarn his disciples. He wants to give them an idea of what they can expect as they go out with that message. And he forewarns them and tells them that they're going to encounter opposition outside and inside their own household. On a scale from being mocked all the way to being killed. As Hebrews 11.36 says, some faced jeers and flogging while others were chained and put in prison. Others were stoned. Others were sawed in two. And some were put to death by the sword. You see, persecution is on a scale. Some of that seems extreme to our ears today. We live in a country where we face various forms of jeers. That's what we face, various forms of jeers, nothing more. Well, around the world, our brothers and sisters face flogging. They face imprisonment. And some of them even face death because they're bringing the good news of Jesus Christ. So how are we to handle this persecution as it comes our way? And that's what Jesus begins to unpack. Last week we began to cherry pick what Jesus is telling us, some of the the ways in which we are to to absorb the, the persecution and handle and deal with the persecution. He first says, face it with wisdom. Be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. Be wise when when you are encountering persecution. Sometimes stand firm, like Ephesians 6 tells us. Or sometimes flee, like verse 23 tells us here. Sometimes defend ourselves. Sometimes we have to absorb it. Sometimes we, we speak. Sometimes God calls us to be silent. And that takes incredible wisdom. It takes incredible wisdom and prudence. When are we to do all that? As William Barclay states in his commentary, we do well to remember that while we are bound to accept martyrdom for our faith, we are forbidden to court it. If suffering for our faith comes to us in course of duty, we must accept it. But it must not be needlessly invited. For to invite it does more harm than good to the faith that we bear. We have to be wise in how we go about facing persecution. Secondly, we talked about we handle persecution not only wisely but with confidence. And our confidence comes from two sources we looked at last week. The first source is knowing that you will be vindicated in the end. Everything that is hidden will come out in the end. 
all the mistreatment, all the lies, all the untruths that you will hear said about you will eventually come out. So don't obsess over it. It should roll off your back. Secondly, we know our confidence comes from knowing how extraordinarily treasured we are. That's the huge antidote for our fear of man, brothers and sisters. Knowing how treasured you are, how loved, how cared for you are by God Almighty. That's why many people's favorite psalm is Psalm 121. Because in that psalm, it's all about how treasured you are. And because you're treasured, you'll be protected by God. Just listen to a few lines. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going now and forevermore. That is people's favorite psalm because it conveys how treasured you are. Because of that, he's going to watch over you. That psalm causes us to say, with a God like that, what can man do to me? With a God like that, what can man do to me? That's exactly where we left off last week. So Jesus goes on and gives us a third help in facing persecution. Look with me at verse 28. It says, And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. My Lord, Pastor, how is that going to help us? When we face persecution. That's one of the scariest verses in all of scripture. (laughs) But I think what Jesus is getting at is when we're faced with that kind of external pressure. And we're tempted to fear that. We have to remember a greater fear. We should approach persecution fearfully. The Bible is filled with why fear of the Lord is important in our lives. We all know that fear is the beginning of wisdom. It also says that it prolongs our life and leads to life. It says that it's a blessing. Fear of the Lord is a blessing in our life. Proverbs 24 tells us that fear of the Lord gives us confidence. But for many of us, we have a wrong understanding of what fear of the Lord is. Many of us, we have the kind of Wizard of Oz type of understanding of fear of the Lord. You remember that, that scene in the Wizard of Oz when they finally get to the Emerald City and, and Dorothy and, and the Tin Man and the Scarecrow and the Lion make it into the great Oz's chamber. And they, they, they're ushered in and the door closes behind them and, and in front of them is this this green apparition face with the, with the plumes of, of fire and smoke and the booming voice and the belittling 
uh, voice, uh, how, how the, the wizard belittles them, and they're terrified. Unfortunately, for some Christians, that's the, the image that is conjured up when we think of fear of the Lord. It's a, it's a very negative fear. And there's certainly aspects of Yahweh that do conjure up that type of fear. I mean, when, when you read Habakkuk 3 and, and he's describing who he is and he's describing mountains just kind of crumbling under his sovereignty, that it conjures up that type of fear. Or, or in Genesis, when, when he rains down fire and sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah in judgment, it conjures up that type of fear for, of God's wrath. Or, or when his magnitude is, is, is described in the end of Isaiah 66, when he, the throne of his, his throne is the universe and the earth is his footstool. It conjures up that type of take your breath away type of magnitude. But you see, God is not just that. God, in his word, describes himself as loving, as gentle, as compassionate, as merciful, as as giving, as generous. And I think that's the balance that Jesus is trying to show us in these verses here. That proper fear of the Lord is the tension between that type of fear that we should have for who God is and God Almighty and His holiness. Holding it in tension with who God is in his kindness and gentleness and love. If we can hold those two things together, we will properly understand the fear of the Lord. We must look upon the storm of Mount Sinai, sure, but we also have to recognize how sweet he is in providing manna every day. We must hold the throne room of Isaiah 6 firmly in our mind, which is put there to to give us the kind of trembling awe of who he is. Yet, at the same time, remember that that same God tenderly fed Elijah with ravens and gave oil to the widow. We have to know that the same Jesus who came full of mercy and grace and sacrifice is the same Jesus that is going to come back with his robe dipped in blood, with the sword coming out of his mouth in justice and wrath. In other words, the fear of the Lord for the believer is holding God's terrifying and holy power and holiness in tension with his gentle love and mercy. Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Joy of Fearing God, 
describes this tension as the difference between centrifugal and centripetal force. Centrifugal force tends to pull away from the center of rotation. We all know that when you spin something, it's pulling away from the center. Centripetal force is, is that opposite force that draws towards the center. So if you think of put, tying a rock on a string and swinging it around, the centrifugal force is trying to pull that, the rock away from the string. But the string is, is giving equal centripetal force on pulling it towards the center. So the rock stays at an even orbit. So if we think about it like this, the centrifugal force that pulls away represents God's attributes of holiness and sovereignty and wrath and justice, omnipotence. Those, those attributes that, that tend to instill the fear of the Lord in us, that, that keep us kind of at a distance from him because of who he is. However, the centripetal force that draws us towards him is like his love and his mercy and his kindness and his generosity. How he treasures us, how he vows never to leave us. That kind of draws us towards him, doesn't it? We want to be close to that God. And the fear of the Lord is the perfect balance between these two. And that's what Jesus is saying here. If you look at verse 28, which we just read, it's a uh, terrifying verse. But if you look at verses 29 and 30 and 31, as we looked at last week, that's the centripetal force of, of pulling us towards him. We are treasured. So he wants us to see that the fear of the Lord is keeping these two in tension. And that proper fear of the Lord will help you navigate persecution, will help you navigate the pressures that you face because of your faith. See, love is incredibly powerful. We all know that. Love is a powerful, it draws us close to people. Love is powerful. The power to make incredible choices and sacrifices. Love, the Bible says, is the main motivator in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the main motivator. Because Jesus loved us, he came when the Father sent him. That's John 3.16, right? Because of his love for us. He lived a sinless life under the law he created, Galatians 4.4 tells us, because he loved us. He loved us so much that he endured the cross, scorning its shame. It's Hebrews 12.2. He was willing to go to the cross because of love. Because of love, he laid down his life for us while we were yet sinners. That's what Romans 5.8 tells us. Because he loved us so much, he was willing to be made sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5. Love for you and me motivated the greatest rescue operation ever. You and me. 
Ephesians 2 puts it this way, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. So love is powerful, brothers and sisters. It can motivate you to do all kinds of things. Endure persecution because of your love for Christ. But fear is also powerful too. Fear is a powerful motivator. Oswald Chambers says the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you don't fear God, you fear everything else. So in a way, when you are in fear, there's a faithlessness there. That's why Jesus says, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's why he's saying that. He's trying to remind us whom we should ultimately fear. Not our friend who is mocking us because of our faith. Not our family who's putting pressure on us and thinking of us silly because of what we believe. Not the school system or the government. Fear God. Jesus' message is clear here. Fear properly placed on God gives you freedom from fear of everything else. That's what gave the disciples the courage to face the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. That's what gave Peter and John the ability to, to be flogged, be thrown in jail, and then leave and rejoice. That's what gave Paul the ability when he was told prophetically that he was going to Jerusalem and he was going to die to keep going to Jerusalem. That's what gave Stephen the, 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 the ability to say that amazing sermon in front of the people that he knew if he said those words were going to stone him. So it gave the early Christian brothers and sisters the courage to oppose the Roman government and to walk into the Colosseum praising God. That's what gave the reformers the ability to oppose the Catholic Church and their kings and face the fear of being burned at the stake. Could you imagine? So give our Chinese brothers and sisters right now the courage to keep meeting despite the threat of being thrown in jail for the rest of their life. And we stay away because of masks. That's what's going to keep our mouths open about gay marriage and transgender rights and the opposition of abortion despite the fear of what people will say and do. Fear of the Lord will keep us proclaiming the gospel when the government tries to label it hate speech. And that's coming. Brothers and sisters, the consequence that we face here 
when we obey God rather than man is trivial. That's what we have to get through our heads. It's trivial. There are bumps and bruises compared to eternity. That's what Jesus is expressing in verse 39 when he says, whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Have the right perspective. For years, the opening of ABC's Wide World of Sports showed the agony of defeat. If you guys a little older remember this, you can go on YouTube and probably bring this up. And they showed the agony of defeat through a painful ending of an attempted ski jump, if you remember. The skier appeared to be in good form, heading down the slope. But then for no apparent reason, and I, and I watched this again, and it is almost no apparent reason, he leans over to the side and tumbles head over heels and smashes into the broadcast booth. It's, it's horrifying what he the, the, the accident that he goes through. Now, what most people don't know, and what I didn't know until this week, is that he chose to fall. He decided to fall. He explained later the jump surface that had become too fast. And midway down the ramp, he realized that if he completed that jump... He would land way past the landing area onto flat ground and would probably die. So he decided to take the bumps and bruises ahead of time. You see, the fear of death led him to change his course. Fear led to life. Jesus says in verse 32, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my heavenly Father. Like that jumper, when we face opposition and persecution, jeers and mocks that tempt us to close our mouth, We have a choice to make. Take the minor scratches and bruises now or fly too far and face the fatal fall at the end. That's what Jesus is saying here. Lastly, Jesus wants us to handle persecution enduringly. Look at verse 22 with me. In verse 22, he says, You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus wants us to understand something here. That this verse is a profound encouragement to you and me as believers. It should not cause us anxiety or worry. Oh, I don't know. I hope I'll endure to the end. Because the genuine believer will endure to the end. 
That's biblical fact. If you're a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, if you've given your life to Christ and you don't trust it all in your own works, but only what Jesus has done for you, you will make it through opposition and persecution and difficulty because of your faith. You see, persecution is a, is a really a kind of a litmus test for believers. Because it does one of two things in a believer's life. First of all, it exposes false believers. Persecution, pressure, difficulty, because of Jesus' name, exposes false belief. Charles Jenkins had been a soldier for nine years. He had a good conduct award and promoted several times to the rank of sergeant. But on January 5th, 1965, he tied a white T-shirt to his rifle and defected across the demilitarized zone to North Korea. Why did he walk? Why did he walk away? Why did he walk away from his country, whom he pledged to defend? He said he fled because he was afraid he'd be transferred to the much more dangerous assignment in Vietnam. Jenkins fled because of the possibility of of difficulty that lay before him. And the scripture tells us that there are those among us who will do the same when persecution comes. That's what scripture tells us. Jesus tells us in various ways in a couple chapters. He's going to describe it as a field that is like wheat and tares, wheat and weeds. And they look alike. People who profess Christ, people who know the gospel, people who go through all the motions, people who come to church on Sunday, people who sing the praises of God, people who raise their hands, people who tear up, people who know the catechism, people who give to church, people who look like real Christians. But they desert and they prove that they were never Christians ever at all that's what persecution does that's what pressure does these are people who want all the benefits of Christ but none of the bruises Jesus speaks of it in terms of a, like I said of a field filled with wheat they grow together and they look alike until times get difficult, until the sun gets overhead and really starts beating down. And then the tares wither. The Apostle John explains it this way in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. In other words, the person that rejects Christ and takes the easy road during persecution was never really a Christian to begin with. 
That's the litmus test of persecution. Yet, during that same pressure, during that same persecution, when false believers are exposed, exposed, genuine believers are encouraged. Genuine believers are encouraged during that same process. Pastor John MacArthur writes this, Enduring persecution to the end is a, mark, is a hallmark of genuine saving faith. Endurance does not produce salvation, nor protect your salvation, which is totally a work of grace, but endurance is the evidence of salvation, proof that a person is truly redeemed in a child of God. And the encouragement that Jesus wants for us today is every genuine Christian will endure persecution. However severe it gets, you will endure it. You will persevere through it. You will make it to the end. There is no doubt. So as you're buffeted and you persevere, be encouraged, brother. As you're ignored by your friends and left off social lists, don't lose heart. Gain encouragement, sister. When you're jeered and perhaps mocked and you endure... Be heartened. When your family looks down on you because of your faith and you persist, be buoyed. And keep your eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of your faith. On September 2nd, 1945, the documents of surrender officially ending World War II were signed by the Japanese and the designated representatives of the Allied Nations. General Douglas MacArthur officially officiated the ceremony aboard the USS Missouri and was the last to sign on behalf of the United States. MacArthur took his Parker fountain pen and simply signed his first name, Douglas. And then he took his pen and handed it to General Wainwright, who signed the first part of his last name, Mac, M-A-C. Then MacArthur took the pen again and gave it to another man, General Percival, who finished his name, Arthur. This unusual procedure was MacArthur's way of honoring the two United States generals, who had suffered years of persecution in a Japanese internment camp. They had persevered, and now they were allowed to share in the glory. Brothers and sisters, when you get discouraged, remember that you will share in the glory to come. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Spirit, use it. Encourage us. Help us, Lord, under the pressures that we face, each one different in this room and at home. For the brothers and sisters that are standing for you, let us be encouraged as as we persevere through difficulty together. In Jesus' name, amen.